The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point were set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 163 is something like, are there natural kinds? We are speaking to author Stuart Umphrey about his 2016 book, Natural Kinds and Genesis, The Classification of Material Entities. To get the reading and more information, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linton-Meyer, remaining consistent in spite of change in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Allwan, just happy to have grade two compositional and uh, metabolic involvement in the world. This is Dylan Casey sitting discontentedly between two stools in Annapolis, Maryland. And this is Stuart Humphrey. Grateful to all of you for having this podcast. Welcome. Welcome, Stuart. Welcome. Thank you. This is a strange area for us. We've done a little bit of metaphysics, but even by your own admission, this book is not typical metaphysics. And even though you give a lot of great philosophical history, you keep saying, I'm going to ignore the philosophical history because I'm going to do that in another book and do a more direct analysis of the concepts involved, maybe we should feel around what this attempt to do natural philosophy is, right? That's, of course, what Descartes and certainly Newton was considered at the time, but we tend not to use that term, that once science became its own thing, once the different sciences broke off from philosophy, they ceased to be philosophy. We still have philosophy of science, a thing that scientists roundly ignore, but that talk about the certainty of philosophical theories and the epistemology involved. But this is supposed to be charting out a different space, something that's more in line with the old-fashioned Aristotelian through Descartes and folks' natural philosophy, and that there is, in fact, even acknowledging the independent empirical work that sciences are doing, there is room for this thing, natural philosophy. Do you want to talk a little about what that is? Yeah. It seems to me that philosophers today have three resources for investigating nature. One is pre-scientific and pre-philosophical experience and understanding of the world. The second is scientific theory, the natural sciences. And the third is our philosophical traditions. And in this book, I use the first two of those resources. And my claim is that with respect to some questions, one of them being, what is a natural kind? And perhaps also the question, are there any natural kinds? Our everyday understanding of the world is the place to begin. We don't have to begin with Descartes or Galileo or Newton or any more recent scientist. I claim, moreover, that the distinction between philosophy and science is something that came into being. It came into the being in the 18th century, was generally accepted partway through the 19th century, but that the reasons for making that distinction are not reasons that we have to regard as sufficient. So, hence, this book. So there's a way to be a natural philosopher, which relies more on what we might think of as common sense than scientific inquiry. Yeah, an example would be Aristotle. It doesn't mean we have to be Aristotelian philosophers. But Aristotle did not proceed within the framework of modern science, obviously. And he proceeded principally by relying on two resources, namely our pre-philosophical understanding of the world, or their pre-philosophical understanding of the world, and the philosophical traditions for him. So I think it's worth saying that at the end of the book, or the last couple chapters of the book, you'd make a turn towards natural science to look into 
see what kinds of answers natural science provides to some of the questions that you're raising earlier. And also that this pre-philosophical understanding, it seems to me it wouldn't apply merely to the question of doing natural philosophy, but it's sort of a philosophical disposition in general. Yes. So it's not as if it's a technique for doing natural philosophy. It's a technique for doing philosophy. That's correct. This is why in chapter two, there are two contemporary philosophical positions that I need to, if not reject, at least cut down to size. And the second of them is called physicalism sometimes, or philosophical naturalism. And this is the view that our sole authority in investigating nature has to be scientific theory. We take that as given. What I argue is that that's contrary to what philosophy is. Philosophy doesn't take anything simply as given. It might take something for granted as a hypothesis, something to suppose for the time being, but everything is in principle in question. And it's not the case that something needs to be natural to exist. I do claim that too. Natural meaning existing in space and time. So the objects of mathematics, for instance, are are taken as not natural objects, that either they are If you're a nominalist, you just say that there are ways the mind used to classify things or to create abstractions based on naturally occurring things, or they're somehow platonic essences, which immediately, once you bring that notion, it makes the whole thing sound silly. This was our first encounter with talking about this kind of thing. Plato says the way that we recognize individual objects is by relating them to the category under which they fall, which is a form. But then if a form is a real thing in the, well, we don't want to say the world, if you mean the space-time continuum, but it's within our ontology. It is something that metaphysically exists. It's beyond space and time. But then is there a form for everything? Is there a form for chairs? Is there a form for every single kind of rock? Well, isn't it a little arbitrary how we categorize rocks? Aren't there different levels of categorization that you've got species and genre? Are there are forms for all those? Well, no, certainly there can't be forms for all that stuff. So therefore, this whole idea of a one beyond the many must be ridiculous. And you're talking about natural kinds is a way to, in effect, not necessarily defend Platonism per se, to put any specific metaphysical theory about what forms are or even use the term forms, but it is to say that there are kinds on which you would want to posit that there's an overarching trans-temporal, trans-spatial something or other, a universal, and that there are other kinds, things that might appear to be kinds, ways of categorizing things that are more obviously ad hoc, are socially created. They're not natural kinds. You said a lot there. I'd like to break it into parts. Going back to mathematical kinds, I'm tempted to say yes, but there is mathematical physics. And some of mathematical physics is very mathematical. And Descartes, for one, thought that the science of the physical world could be reduced to some sort of mathematics. I don't say that that's true or false, but it shows that it's complicated. I think this much can be said. If the space of the physical world is as physicists now say it is, then Euclidean cubes cannot exist in physical space and uh, the way Euclid defines them. Yet we may want to say that there's a form, there's a mathematical form, which is given by Euclid's definition of a cube. So that would be one case. Lobachevsky's horospheres might be another case where a Platonist might want to say there is such a form 
but it has no instances in the natural world and can't if indeed physical space is as people now say it is. That's the first part. We want to be careful just throwing out examples like that, that the audience is going to have no idea what point you're trying to make. Just stick to the Euclidean cubes. That Why do we want to say that Euclidean <laughs> cubes can't exist? It's What is it about actual space that we want to say is non-Euclidean? Is it just the fact that we're living on a sphere? The sides of a Euclidean cube are Euclidean squares. And we might want to say that Euclid should have revised his definition of a square, but it is a four-sided figure whose sides are all straight lines, they're all equal, and all the angles are right angles. And if space is as the physicists say it is these days, one isn't going to find an edge or a face that is a square so defined. Yet that definition might be a definition of the form squareness. So, I mean, this isn't so different. I mean, we've talked a couple of times where we brought up, I forget what podcast it was on, we're talking about Kant and about the question of whether Kant's metaphysics and natural philosophy relies on Newtonian mechanics and right. Euclidean geometry. And right. Wes came to Kant's defense saying that there's nothing about Kant in principle that would say that you couldn't have curvilinear space-time as the proper model for space and time as opposed to Euclidean. I think that's true as a matter of fact. Yeah. And the point being made here is that if there are multiple models for actual space and time, that is what exists, some of them will align with our, I don't even know if it's pre-philosophical, our earliest model for that, which was something like Euclidean geometry. Yes. And upon further investigation through mathematical physics or other things, we and then ultimately with experiments that confirm that mathematics, we come to a conclusion that indeed Euclidean geometry doesn't exist in the world and that the world is not shaped in that way, strictly mm -hmm. speaking. At best, it's an approximation. But if we wanted to say that it exists, we would maybe say that the best possibility would be some other kind of geometrical figure that has a chance of existing. But we know for sure that Euclidean That's objects do not exist. And I would like to start with clear cases of <laughs> mathematical objects that don't exist. Yeah. I don't know about some of the others. Yeah. But mainly because we know by counterexample <laughs> yes. that Euclidean objects don't exist. That's right. Can we get then more about the difference between just universals and natural kinds? Two different related philosophical problems here. Yes. In my book, I venture the hypothesis that there are universals, and I immediately ask which ones count as real. That's a very difficult question. I don't answer that question uh, in my book. I simply want to raise it as a question. And it seems to me that you were right in saying, well, we have all sorts of kinds. We have all sorts of general terms would be another way of looking at it. It would seem foolish to simply assume that for every general term we have, there's a form or a universal, some non-spatiotemporal entity, which may or may not have instances. Yeah, and we read Nelson Goodman, who explicitly puts forward examples of concepts that we just made up, like bleen, where we said it's blue before time T and it's green after time T. And so there you go. I just picked out a unique set of individuals. So that's a class, and therefore that must be a kind. But this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We can make them up as we please. It's important to say why we're talking about this. And I think it's, if I've understood <laughs> you right, so from chapter two, I think the upshot is that we need to be realists if we're going to talk about natural kinds. 
And then in chapter three, and it, uh, I think it's a good idea to keep it real. Yeah. <laughs> realists about universals. Well, in chapter three, we find out that we have to be realist about universals. So if we want to have a, we don't have to be, but I posit that as a hypothesis or it's not something that we can, yeah, exclude outright. I guess that I think is a good way of putting it, yeah. but some types at least must be mind independently real. Is that a better way to put it? Yes. One of the principal claims I make in that chapter is that even if we agree that there are universals, it doesn't follow necessarily that there are any natural kinds as types, because it may turn out that all of the universals there are, are not natural kind types. But the converse is true. To the extent that we're searching, trying to say what is a natural kind that aligns with anything like our pre-philosophical disposition regarding. So if we're on the search for a natural kind, what is it and does it exist? The first three hypotheses you have, which are ones that are going to get us on the way to that, mm -hmm. one would be is that they have to be real mm -hmm. in order to be natural kinds. Right. Yeah. And then as Wes was saying, I think, before I tried to correct him, it's not just realists about universals, but realists about the external world at all. Like, unless we are, if we are idealists, then we're just not going to get off the ground at all. Correct. And that's my hypothesis H2, yep. which I put forward in chapter two. So, yeah, let's just, maybe we should read those, but go ahead. Well, the first hypothesis I recall, at least one of you has the list in front of me. I, so I do, I have it okay. right in front of me. We can read those. Okay. So, just to set up what these are, I mean, this goes to the mode of doing natural philosophy in which we're, again, we're on the search for something, and we're calling them the conditions of our inquiry so that we're self-conscious about them. Correct. But that we are not saying something like that they are axiomatic or assumptions, we're saying there are somehow conditions for our inquiry. Correct. So we're taking what Husserl calls a natural attitude, and we're open to the idea that it could be productive. Yes, that's it exactly. What I try to show in my book is that it's very productive with regard to discovering what it is to be a natural kind. It's less productive with regard to the more empirical question, are there any natural kinds? Yeah. But we start out by supposing that our subject matter is real. And we may find that it isn't. That is, we may find that the answer to our second question is, no, there aren't any natural kinds. Mm -hmm. But we started out by thinking that there are, and that's in accordance with the natural attitude also. But I uh, leave that as a question. I don't put it forward as a hypothesis. I was just going to say the reason why that's part of the natural attitude is that we on a daily basis, we tend to think of squirrels, to, to use an example. That's right. We'll use later human beings, that they're these sort of paradigmatic, natural kind entities. And it's only after we've had too much philosophy, for instance, or too much science, really, too much contemporary science, that, that we're willing to sort of reduce those to something else and say, well, they don't really exist. It's just atoms and molecules that exist. And Yes, Wes said near the beginning, I hope that I'm metabolically grade two. Yeah. That is, I hope I'm a continuum. A lot follows, I think, if we are not continuants. Uh, <laughs> we just think we are. That's sort of the third requirement for natural kinds after some sort of realism about types. We Exactly. Let's say what continuants are. Let's just lay that right out, though. It's one of the fundamental. Again, you describe your book as you're laying out the landscape for what natural philosophy would be doing. And so... At the very least, we need to, for our listeners, lay out what these basic terms are. And if that's all they leave here with, 
then that's not so bad. So we should say something about particulars before we jump into continuance. I was going to go back, in fact. No, do that. Please do. Uh, Natural kinds we understand as types or as classes. And this is just ordinary thinking without a lot of philosophical speculation or scientific theorizing. We make use of this concept, I claim, every day in classifying some things as human beings, other things as squirrels or horses or oak trees and so on. Secondly, it has a role in our typifying activities, and that's a fundamental activity of thought, and in our classifying activities, another fundamental activity of thought. Furthermore, human beings and horses and oak trees and the like are good examples of what we ordinarily think is real. What's real? These things are real. What I do in chapter three is argue that there are universals and claim that it doesn't follow that there are any natural kinds, even as types. Can we just distinguish here? You've now made this distinction like three times between types and classes that I don't think is going to be obvious to people. For folks that listen to our Frega or or some other recent analytical episodes, it really comes down to the difference between intention and extension. A class of things is just a group of things. You've named the class if you point out each of the members and say, that's the class. Whereas a type is characterizing what would make up a class. There might not even be any instances of that class in existence. A unicorn would be a type. It has no members, so there is no class of unicorns, but there is still a type of being that's a unicorn. Right. Is that clear enough, then, what a type is and what a class is? I think so. So let's see what you were going to say about it. You were getting to the end of Chapter 3 in your summary there. Yeah, yeah. Real types would be universals. Mm -hmm. The instances of universals are traditionally called particulars. What I maintain is that for natural kinds in the primary sense of the term, the members of the class or the instances of the natural kind, let's say humankind, that these are enduring things. That brings us to the next chapter. Should we go there now or, or not? That is to what a continuum is. Unless we want to make a detour to saying about the intrinsic properties versus extrinsic, was that whole... That's in chapter four. Yeah. I just wanted to read from the end of chapter three a little bit because we go from kinds to natural kinds. And I think this is where you talk a little bit about the importance of Genesis. So this is on page 44 to 45. It reminds us that natural kinds are natural not insofar as they are types but insofar as the members of such kinds are by nature involved in generation and change, in genesis. Bearing this in mind will help us to resist the temptation ever-present in natural philosophy either to split being, the invariant, apart from being, variation, or else to subsume one in the other. And this is something that will become very important in chapter 4, the sense in which we have to hold the invariant and the, the variant together in some sense. That's the problem. You've just given a nice demonstration of of how this book reads. It is quite a difficult book (laughs) for our average listener to simply grab this and jump in. I made it as easy as I could. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a book that's designed to stimulate thinking and to, you know, unfortunately, given the amount of time we had to prepare, you could spend a lot of time with any chapter and go to the references and do a lot of thinking about it. And I think that's the most productive use of this. And I think that anyone with any level of familiarity in philosophy could use it in that way. But yes, as far as trying to quickly read it, it's dense and difficult. So. I agree. <laughs> That's my defense of the, uh, <laughs> thank you very much of your approach. <laughs> thank you. Before we move to continuance, and maybe we'll say something about this, but 
when you said that particulars that we are interested in natural kinds endure, you pretty quickly make a distinction between endurance and perdurance. Yes. That is, things that seem like they only incidentally continue or endure in space and time, things like eddies in a stream or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I guess I thought that was just worth pointing out, that endurance are self-contained. Well, so say what perdurance is. These terms I, I did not invent. I'm borrowing them from some of the philosophical literature. A number of philosophers distinguish between what they think of as three-dimensional objects existing through time or in time, which is the way we ordinarily understand a human being, and perdurance. These are four-dimensional objects which occur, we could say, and they have temporal parts not just spatial parts. There are a number of philosophers today who think that endurance are inherently vague and we should expunge them from our ontology, whereas perdurance not only have a more scientific cast, but are not inherently vague. And so one of the things I have to do in this chapter, because the conclusion of this chapter is the hypothesis that there are continuance, Mm -hmm. is that I have to say something on behalf of understanding the world, or at least some of the world, in terms of three-dimensional objects which endure through time and not as four-dimensional objects. Just to try to be a little bit more clear about four-dimensional objects, we're talking about things that, in some way, their existence is a result of interactions amongst things that have some kind of organization to them. Correct. Then you could point to them as having structure and space and time, Correct. but that they lack the kind of wholeness and constitutional integrity that a three-dimensional object that endures in time would. They don't have the wholeness at any given moment in time. It's only as a cross-temporal wormhole that they are treated as a whole. That's it, exactly. So in, in one way, this would be helpful is if you got tripped up in thinking about a human being and what kind of endurance a human being is, found yourself very quickly wanting to, or getting tripped up by, well, is a baby a human being? Is an old man a human being? Or is the human being the entity that exists from birth until death? And all those kinds of questions. And at any given point, you know, if you chopped off their hand, are they a human being? Things like that. I feel like you might be inclined to go down this perduant route that you would not worry so much about those kinds of changes and transformations. That's correct. For a while, philosophers, this was back in the 60s and 70s, a little before then too, some philosophers were very intent on ascertaining what they called the identity conditions for a singular thing mm -hmm. through time. What allows us to say, this is the same entity now, as it was, let's say, whatever the yeah, is. Yeah, if I turn away my head, I'd go back. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Am I now the same entity as that entity 30 years ago mm -hmm. that happens to have been called Stuart Humphrey? Mm -hmm. And if all my cells flip over and are regenerated exactly. in some amount of time. And my thoughts aren't the same. Yeah. Even my memories have probably changed considerably. <laughs> I've, I've invented a whole new set of memories uh, in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And possibly your character. Yes. It appeared so difficult to them to come up with these identity conditions that a number of them began to think that there aren't any, <laughs> that we just make things up. And much of the time we happen to make things up 
in a consonant way. That is, I'm making things up the same way you do. So we say, yeah, that's the same person now as it was then. And we have a few problem cases, quite a few probably. But we have some agreement, but it's only because we're making up things in the same way. Hume's position is very close to this. So they felt at a loss, and they thought, well, maybe if we think of things as perdurance rather than endurance, we've got a better chance of coming up with identity conditions for a given perdurance, because there's a sense in which it's all there. It's all there in space-time. As Solon said, you can never call an endurant truly happily only a perdurant. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Very good, very good. Though uh, there is a question. I think it may be the case that only continuance, that is endurance, can be happy. <laughs> but <laughs> I suppose. That's, uh, that's just off the top of my head. Well, I was just thinking maybe we should meet Blackie the squirrel. <laughs> okay. Blackie hasn't been around in a few years. Whatever those philosophical arguments about perdurance and endurance, I think, you know, you start this chapter four with sort of the everyday intuition of an entity that's both independent and dependent, changing and unchanging at the same time. And then then we're going to build on that for the continuant. But a, a squirrel that's in different locations at different times and its matter is changing and it's perhaps even some of its properties, perhaps its color will change ultimately, but in the some sense is the same squirrel. And then we have to distinguish what you call the substantial from the non-substantial. If we're going to talk about the sense in which it's staying the same, we have to make this substance substantial versus non-substantial distinction. I think that's the next step in the argument. Yeah, I have principally two ways of trying to understand the being of an entity such as Blackie the Squirrel. First of all, there would be pretty widespread agreement, I think, that Blackie was an enduring thing. It remained the same, even though it was changing all the time. It's important to keep that in mind. That's where we start. So it makes sense, given that starting point, to ask, how can it be the same, even though it's changing all the time. I try two ways, principally, of trying to get at that. The first is in terms of the substantial as distinguished from the non-substantial, or the what as distinguished from the how. And that's a very traditional way. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. And the second way, which is somewhat novel, is to understand different degrees or grades to which something might be involved in the world metabolically with respect to composition and with respect to situation. And I argue that there's a grade two that's neither grade one nor grade three and that continuance are to be located there. When it comes to saying what substance is, I think what I got out of that is sort of, you know, you're dealing with substantial I don't know if properties is the right word, but but basically, whatever kills it, whatever changes are going to kill the entity, essentially. I think it's clear in the case of biological organisms, and it might be in other cases, because whatever changes kill it are those changes that are substantial. Am I right about that? Or Well, yeah. Killing almost guarantees it by the meaning of the word. I think most people agree here, too. If Blackie moves up a tree and then down a tree sitting in various positions, the change hasn't been substantial. I think squirrel watchers would agree. If Blackie should lose an eye, that would not be a substantial change. Pretty drastic change, but not a substantial one. Or lose part of his tail, 
But if I go outside to pick up the newspaper one morning and see what appears to be Blackie on the street, but it's a blob-like mess, I think I and most squirrel watchers will agree that a substantial change has taken place, that Blackie no longer exists. And there may be very minor changes. These are a little more difficult. I used a, a graphic one. There may be a minor change in Blackie, which would count as a substantial change. Blackie was alive or existed before. Blackie no longer exists now. So you're giving us a good example of the difference between what you call later S resemblance versus P resemblance. In other words, the word substantial sounds like it's just a folk psychology term, just a term, an intuitive term. Oh, you know when something gets a substantial change or not, but you're actually zooming into something like substance, like the Aristotelian, is some sort of technical term. A substantial change is a change in substance, whereas other kinds of changes are maybe changes in properties or certain kinds of properties. There are substantial properties and insubstantial properties. Do we need to make the jump to a formal metaphysics right here, or do we like the fact that we're still kind of in the realm of the everyday description here? I'm trying to move by small degrees <laughs> from the ordinary to the not-so-ordinary. It's both an advantage and a disadvantage that the words substantial and essential derive ultimately from Aristotelian philosophy, but are so embedded in ordinary speech now and in ordinary ways of thinking that I can help myself to them at least for a while. There is another term I use, which Aristotle has a counterpart term, but I think it's quite ordinary. It's Blackie's nature, what's in his nature. So his nature, his substance, his essence, his whatness as distinguished from his howness. These are all various ways of trying to talk about the same thing. Much like hylomorphism. It's a very common, it's everyday English, yet also we're studying. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I was going to want to start talking about water, but I think it's too soon to do that. I, I, think, I think that's good. I think no, you should. We can use water. Water is a perfectly ordinary example. This is something that there's, that runs immediately as a trouble that keeps getting brought up throughout the whole thing. Water runs, Mark. What counts as a paradigmatic and exemplary example? Yes, this is correct. Of a type. Is it something like being a squirrel or being water? Those are two paradigmatic examples. One of them is an individual, a singular thing. The other is a mass. And the difference between singular things and masses is very important but they are both realities according to our ordinary understanding of things. And then we might put alongside that H2O and whether or not that is a mass or that is an individual. Right, and that, I come to that in Chapter 6. Yeah. My initial reason for wanting to bring up water is the idea of destroying it or a substantial change so that if I had split water with electrolysis into hydrogen and oxygen, I would say that I don't have water anymore. That's right. And I would mean something very similar to I don't have Blackie anymore mm -hmm. when I see him squished on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Even though I can point to the parts that were there, I can point to the remnants in some respect, but I'd say that technically I have a substantial change on my hands or in a normal everyday way, I don't have what I had before. And we can say that according to the going account of the history of, of the universe, there was a time when there was no water. Mm -hmm. There's water now, and there may be a time when there's no longer water. Both in terms of the mass term, as well as in terms of any, Correct. what we would think of as an individual term. Correct. Both, both yep. those things are true. Before we continue on with this part, do we want to say more about 
grade one, two, and three, or it's towards the end of four, right? There's metaphysical difficulties and metaphysical difficulties continued. I just thought we should say first, we have this continuum, which is varying and not varying. And it turns out intrinsically, as opposed to extrinsically, we could say what that means in a second. And then the question is, well, what's staying the same? And I think the word nature captures that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But we should probably say a little more about what that means. What is it for a thing to have a nature that stays the same through its non-substantial changes? Blackie has wax in him and the wax <laughs> stays the same. <laughs> Possibly. I would like to flag one thing here. One thing that's common to natural science and natural philosophy, with a couple of exceptions, is that both are looking for what's invariant in what is varying. And they may have different conceptions of what's invariant, but this is something they have in common. I think only in in recent decades have there been a few French thinkers, for example, have thought that the task is to look at what's varying and forget about the uh, invariant. In addition to flagging that, I wanted to, um, earlier on, we laid the reductionist tendency at the feet of modern science. Mm -hmm. And it's not at all clear to me that that's true. (laughs) That if it is to be laid at the foot of science and sort of scientism, it seems to me that you have to indict philosophy itself for this as well. And exactly on this nub of the fetish of the invariant and where that is and the kind of, I want to say monastical, but that's not exactly the right word, sense of driving towards unity and universal that is unchanging and the notion of an endurant as being always inclining towards an eternal that very quickly obliterate any of the kinds of things that we normally think of as everyday objects or everyday experiences that are enduring, that have an integrity to them. It makes it impossible to talk about them. So we no longer, we say, well, they don't exist because Mm -hmm. they can't exist because no such thing is really an enduring thing unless it's eternal. And that whole inclination. This is part and parcel of the tendency to split apart being from becoming. Exactly. Once we do that, we focus on being. Yep. And becoming, or the history, let's say the history of the universe, Mm -hmm. it becomes something incidental to our, our study. Our real study is the search for that equation, mm-hmm. which will yep. be a theory of everything. A, a stasis point. Yeah. The problem with continuance, if I'm right, and it's also a problem with respect to natural kinds in the primary sense, if I'm right, is that this is very difficult to put uh, in a non-misleading way. If one wants to understand a continuant, it's necessary to distinguish between being and becoming, but one has to do so in a way such that they are not split apart. That's the problem of understanding what I call grade two entities. Grade one entities, it's pretty easy to split apart the being from the becoming. Mm -hmm. Becoming is, is extrinsic to it. With respect to grade three, the becoming is intrinsic. The being is extrinsic, probably made up by us. The problematic case is grade two. Should we give some examples of grade one and grade three entities other than, say, monads? That's the example I'd like to use. Leibniz's monads are grade one entities. So let me just give more words about it. So these are all categories of relationships to the world for individual entities. Right. And so in grade one, their variation and multiplicity and dependence is all extrinsic to them. Right. 
And monads were the example that you give. Let's say what it is that about monads, that that's why they're the quintessential example. They are eternal entities. They're eternal entities, and they are unchanging. Yeah. They're not causally related to anything in the world, or windowless, as Leibniz puts it. Yep. They are windowless, yeah. And they appear to be involved in space and time, and involved in motion, and in multiplicity, and matter. But that's an appearance. He says it's a well-founded appearance, but nevertheless, it's an appearance. And then grade three, grade three, we have their invariance and their unity is extrinsic. And the quintessential example would be matter in motion, sort of the Cartesian view of the world. Yeah, delimited portions of space, according to Descartes. Mm -hmm. That is, delimited portions of matter in motion. The boundaries, the spatial boundaries and the temporal boundaries of such a portion are arbitrary. Some are more arbitrary, according to Descartes, uh, than others. Putting it that way is actually really helpful. This is the typical technique in physics, yes. right? Where you say, you draw a box and you say, exactly. this is my hole. Yeah. Everything else, is, it's yeah. all contained. Yeah. And it was where I get conservation theorems and I make the world rational with yeah. respect to that box. Yeah. And everything is dependent upon those things. You define a system, yep. you take it to be practically independent of its surroundings, yep. even though you agree that it's not, mm -hmm. but it's close enough mm -hmm. that you're going to get a pretty good approximation, mm -hmm. and you proceed to deal with what's in the system, what's in the box. Yep. Solar system. Yep. So when it comes to these grades, I take it right that the solution to our problem of continuance is not to say, well, there's just this grade one unity inside grade three or something like that, or that we can stick them together in some ad hoc way. Yes, I deny that that's possible and try to argue also that it's not possible to understand grade two that way. Grade two is sui generis. And say more about what that means. I mean, having change yet being changeless, well, we understand that is in some respects you are changeless and in some respects you are changing. Well, is there something comparable in terms of the intrinsic, extrinsic distinction for grade two here that you want to say? Grade two is not merely a combination of one and three. So you can't just say, in some respects, the grade two entity, its properties are, some of them are extrinsic and some of them are intrinsic. Yep. Oh, wait, I thought the point was that the grade two entity is intrinsically changing and non-changing. Yes, right. I thought that, was it Wes a moment ago? That was an attempt to combine my talk of the what and the how, mm -hmm. or substantial and non-substantial, with my talk of grades. So it's true of a continuant. There are some properties that are extrinsic, others that are intrinsic, but it's also true, if it's a continuant, that it's grade two. It's intrinsically both being and becoming, but it is a being and becoming. That's important. So in parallel, we can simply say unchanging and blackie are these essential properties, or maybe just the property of being blackie. We can't say that the substance of blackie is identical to being blackie. In fact, the nature is not even itself a continuant. Right. It's important that it can't, that it's not, because if it were, then it would have a nature and you're taking the first step in a regress. And this is where it's hard to talk about. And it makes me wonder about the paucity of our language. We recoil from talking about being and becoming at the same time That's or right. in the same way. If we say, okay, well, Blackie has certain characteristics that are always changing then we immediately, I think, the most typical thing to do is say, okay, well, those things that are changing are incidental to Blackie. Mm -hmm. It's the things that are not changing, what we mean by Blackie's essence, 
that are always there. And therefore, the rest of it, to the extent that they are part of Blackie's becoming, are not part of Blackie's nature. That's sort of the typical line of talking about. There's it. the hardcore at the center, and then there's the stuff on the outside. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's a very tempting picture. Yes. And for a variety of reasons, that fails. And we can talk about that too. But what you're doing with grade two is even as hard as it is to talk about is pointing out that if we have natural kinds, if we have genuine continuance, that's where they sit. Right. And it may be that the class of grade two entities is an empty class. But if there are, there may be some grade two entities that are not continuous, but I can't think of any. I don't argue this because I can't Mm -hmm. Uh, in the book. I can't argue it now, but I suspect. Well, I, I have two suspicions. One is that if some entity is involved metabolically in the world at grade two, It's also involved in the world with respect to composition and situation, grade two. I can't show that, but I suspect it's so. And I'd be eager to hear candidate counterexamples. And the other thing, I suspect that if anything is a grade two object, it's a continuum. If it's a continuum, it's a grade two object. Mm -hmm. So it's a grade two object, if and only if it's a continuum. And should we go through those? What metabolic and situational, is that important enough to dwell on for the listener here? It changes and yet remains unchanging. Mm -hmm. It is partite, it's divisible, and yet it's an individual, it's a singular thing. Mm -hmm. It is dependent on its material surroundings, and yet it's also independent of its material surroundings. The metabolic part is Blackie can't continue being Blackie unless it has this sort of exchange with the world. It eats, it breathes, it poops. Yeah, that's right. That seems to me to be necessarily true. So we're saying that's an intrinsic property of Blackie that he has those things, or we're saying that that defies the intrinsic-extrinsic distinction because it's obviously involves the external. It is intrinsic to Blackie that he is involved in the world metabolically in that way, that he changes. If Blackie didn't change, Blackie wouldn't be Blackie, but something else. I think the way it ended is just such a mystery in a way, how you talk about what makes something a continuance. So for instance, on 53... This is near the bottom of the second full paragraph. The concrete substance X itself is a this such that cannot be reduced to a bare particular or a common nature, sortal or non-sortal universal, or to a combination of the two. Thus, X itself is unique without being so private as to be altogether unlike other substances and comparable without being so public as to not be unique. This is hard to understand. (laughs) Yes, it is very hard. Mm -hmm. Yep. It seems to me that with respect to continuance, we as metaphysicians are driven again and again to find a betwixt and between two extremes. And it's much easier to say what these extremes are than to say what this middle ground is. This is my attempt. This is one of several attempts on my part in this chapter to, to describe this middle ground in a way that's not entirely negative. Is there a sense in which it's unanalyzable, or is that going too too far? I don't know. There's an analytic metaphysician named Peter Van Inwagen who thinks that material beings, that's his technical term for continuance, material beings are inherently vague and problematic. We have a notion of them. It's a very important notion in our daily lives. But our attempts to clarify this notion 
are going to reach certain limits. That's the way it is. And he may be right. I'm a little more optimistic than he, but I can't say that I've made a great deal more progress. I certainly haven't removed the mysterious character but, of one of these beings. So there's a section called The Trouble with Matter where you talk about, yeah. well, how do you pronounce his name? Vent Inwagon? And I thought there's a place where I have like asterisks all over, but just uh, page 64, another thing I thought was worth reading just because some of these things I find so interesting, even if I can't, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to explain them myself, but Top of page 64. Yeah, yeah. Continuance, however, are grade two entities. Hence, the essence or nature of such a thing is not its matter. Nature NX and then the thing X. What then could it be? Consider Blackie. He is, I suggested, a living thing whose material parts are more or less caught up in a particular life activity. This life activity, I now suggest, is his nature, what he is. It does not follow that his materiality is incidental to him. Indeed, were that so, his involvement in the world would be grade one rather than grade two. His materiality must then be necessary without being of the essence. This distinction is admittedly hard to understand, yet no one to my knowledge has shown it to be unintelligible. Yet. Which is a pretty weak conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this kind of example, again, we're brought to the, the different kinds of solutions. Like one solution is that what makes Blackie Blackie is something eternal and ephemeral soul that resides coincidentally with his materiality, but isn't Blackie. Right. And that's one solution to the problem. Right? That's right. Is you have a grade one and a grade three, mm -hmm. and you're good to go. Grade one being something like his soul, I guess, and grade three being his materiality. Mm -hmm. And I guess I feel like it's partly confusing and partly not confusing. And why I say it's not confusing is that we keep being brought back to it. And I don't want to say that we keep being brought back to it because of our naivete or stupidity, but that because there's something persuasive about it. That is, that I look at Blackie and I say, there is something there and that is moving on its own and it has a essence or a character. And why? Because in some kind of plain way, I can identify him over and over again. That's right. And, and in fact, I can identify him over and over again with other things that are very much like him. Mm -hmm. And it's not confusing at all. And if I just start to take it apart a little bit, it, it still isn't so confusing in that I can conceivably raise squirrels. I can interact with them. I can know what kinds of things he needs metabolically and understand something about the not just something, quite a bit about the way Blackie himself works and the way squirrels work in general. Mm -hmm. So now we're at the question of how we get a fix on continuance, to use Stuart's language. Right. So at the top of page 67, we get a fix on continuance by trying to typify them as substances, yet with practice, by paying close attention, we can become expert continuant watchers whose insights are sometimes free of these typifications. It may also be true that we gain no insight into the nature of a continuant without being perceptually aware of the ever-changing qualitative manifolded presents. But again, that insight that depends on sensory awareness does not entail that it is relative to such awareness or that it is really an observation-based inference. What we need is a theory of direct recognition, analysis to Kripke's theory of direct reference, according to which the proper name of an individual designates it rigidly, that is, so anchors us semantically, in what the named individual is that we can identify it across different possible scenarios. Similarly, the direct recognition of this individual so anchors us cognitively in its essence 
or nature that we can keep track of it as it changes over time. So this sounds sort of like a, a sort of intellectual intuition, or is that the wrong way to characterize that? I think we can give any name to it we want, and that's as good as any. This is something which biologists who work with identifying species have simply found. When they tell us what it's like to live with animals of various sorts or plants of various sorts for decades, they gradually get a sense or an intuition about these things. And I'm simply trying to say in a way that's proper to my discussion here what they all say. And there are people who think that what these natural historians are saying about themselves isn't true, that it couldn't be true, that it really is just an observation-based inference, or that dependence really is relativity to some given conceptual scheme or something like that. It seems to me that remains to be shown. And until it's been shown, we should leave open the possibility that what these people are saying about what they've actually accomplished is true, that they have actually had these breakthroughs. And that if we were to study an individual such as Blackie or take a human being for many, many years, we would begin to have a pretty good idea of what's remaining the same through the many changes. So just to put this at a slightly more general level philosophically, if you're a relativist, you might say that the answer to any question that we get always depends on kind of the investigative approach that we engage in. And so there's always something we build in the answer just by our very approach. That's kind of Kuhn's idea of a paradigm. Exactly. That we, we restrict the answers that we're looking for. But And this was something that dominated philosophy for a long time that then Frege, we've also had an episode on, was reacting to, to say, no, you know, when you figure something out, it's because you're stumbling across something true and you can abstract from the way the psychology involved and just talk about the essences that you are discovering about what the thing is that is discovered. And I guess the way to test that is, well, can we reach the same conclusion using different methodology, you know, coming at it from a different angle? And that is something, of course, that we do to make sure that we're not, you know, it could still be the case that in particular instances, we are letting our methodology shape our results in an objectionable way, but there must be we don't want to make that an epistemic absolute that we're just assuming that sort of truth is impossible. It's all relative. Well, for Frege, yeah, you couldn't have given a coherent account. You, there would be no such thing as communication unless there, there were these independent parties, so to speak, about which we could communicate thoughts in his terminology, but not subjective thoughts, real things. So, There's another case, too, that I think points to the same conclusion. It's a matter of astonishment to biologists working in the field, let's say in the Amazon basin, that they make discoveries about species and genera, and the so-called primitive peoples with whom they're living more or less at the time have made exactly the same discoveries. That is, they carve up the world in much the same way. They're manifestly coming from different backgrounds, and yet through investigation, they have reached considerable agreement, not always as to what the species are, but what the nearest genera are, that's where the most agreement is. They almost always agree, in fact. And in fact, some of these so-called primitive people have discovered genera, which the biologist hasn't discovered. He continues looking, and sure enough, it's there. 
Well, that's a profound and surprising conclusion. That sounds like a good way to wrap up our part one here. We'll be back next week, or if you become a partially examined life citizen, you can go and get the rest of the discussion right now, which we're about to have in a few minutes. You might as well do that. Otherwise, we'll uh, see you later. <laughs>